Good morning to all of you. I'm glad to see you here this early in the morning. I hope it's breakfast. The Romans are not competing strongly. Ideas I have to share. So I'll pick up where we left off last evening. There will be a bit of overlap. A repetition rivets things in our minds. Concerning the accepted text of the Bible, which we call the canon of Scripture, as we think of them as books, we know that they are agreed upon by the community of true-hearted believers across centuries and even millennia, millennia of time. Whatever state of confusion you may be in after you look at all the things that are written about the formation of Scripture and its translation, we, I, I'm particularly blessed to know that all of this has passed the uh, careful attention of many believers in the Hebrew community and the Old Testament and the New. I value tradition, living tradition that interprets a living word. Any case for the truth of Scripture will always rests upon faith in God. He is known to us in tradition, as I mentioned that before. In the conscience, in the law, in the word, as written and embodied in Christ, effectively and powerfully acted to us, in us, in us especially, by the work of the Holy Spirit, in us individually, but also corporately, or as a body of believers. That is very significant. Now, in modern times, as uh, historians, translators, textual critics, later, um, look at things that we believe by faith, there may be damaged on the faith by shifting from what we believe to who said it, show me, tell me, then I will believe it. So rationalizing any issue of faith can potentially weaken it, and it will and may cause us to be less willing to obey what we call the central truths of God's word. Consider these good counsels from the respect of the New Testament. In Romans 14, we are told not to judge one another or to and get each other mixed up into doubtful disputation. <coughs> Don't judge the doubtful disputations of weak brothers and sisters. I never like talking about the weak and the strong because I'm not sure where I am with that. And when we talk in such a way, we don't want to pass a judgment on someone who may be very well established in faith, or we may have a weak spot. In First Corinthians, we are told not to use liberty that we have in Christ as a license to weaken others. In Colossians 2, we are told to beware secular philosophy and the vain deceit of men. In First Timothy, we are told to avoid vain arguments and pseudo-science, science falsely so-called. And the positive one from 2 Timothy 1 states, live boldly in the grace of Christ. Now this morning, I want to step right into a quick overview of the Apocrypha. I'm not going to talk about the individual books. You can find them yourself. You can read them. They are worth looking at. You may read about them and Encyclopedias and Bible commentaries of the sort. The Apocrypha 
is a set of books that the Jewish people and the Hebrew people had, which contained historical information that they considered important, but they never considered it, let me use the Christian term, inspired. It was part of their culture. How would I say that? I don't know. The Apocrypha associated with the Old Testament gives insight to Jewish history between the two Testaments, the 400 silent years. The Apocrypha gives us insight into what happened there. The Apocrypha sheds light on Jewish culture and customs, parentheses, as also does Josephus. I'll mention them later. If I have my information right, if you have a little homage, wedding ceremonies that I saw quotations taken from Wilkinson. Um, yes. These books that make up the Apocrypha are hodgepodge of excuse me, I'm wrong. In some cases, the Apocrypha is for bolts. It's got too many words in it. Sometimes I do that too. Sometimes it's extravagant in its ideas and descriptions. One thing that's interesting to us as we look at how Christ and the Apostles use the Apocrypha, there's no place that Jesus or any of the Apostles directly quote from the Apocrypha. You almost get uh, an echo of it, but it's only in those places where the Apocrypha is closely connected to the Old Testament. I'll leave that one. The Apocrypha contains material supporting theoretical notions, and here's where we shy away from it. In other words, there are ideas and beliefs and superstitions, as the word may be, that show up in the Apocrypha that make us wary of using it. Now, the Apocrypha was never considered, I repeat, a valid source for Hebrew faith, particularly. Neither was it true in the Christian community. Near the time of the Reformation, however, as the Reformers pushed back against Catholic doctrine, the Catholic community, and I'm oversimplifying this, uh, suddenly put a higher priority on what was in the Apocrypha because if it disappears, questions about purgatory disappear. So, we're looking at theoretical notions that are supported in the Apocrypha, these include the doctrine of purgatory. We have Baptists describe the intermediate state as what happens where we don't have clear direction about that. So we have a sort of a sideways look at what goes between that we will know in eternity how that is, but it doesn't matter now. I didn't mean to be sarcastic with that. A lot of energy is expended in these little kinds of things. Uh, another issue had to do with indulgences. You know what indulgences are? The idea that you could hate uh, on your faults by doing good works. Uh, Emphasize prayers to the saints. The notion of interceding for the dead. Certain aspects of the doctrine of angels uh, that we seem strange are based on texts from the Apocrypha. The notion of predestination shows up there. And in the doctrine of justification, there is some heresy, I think, probably uh, connected to this business of indulgences and earning your salvation by works. So keep it simple.
that way. I didn't go deeply into this. I have read in the Apocrypha. I leave it for now. The word apocryphal means to be hidden or obscured. And we use that word apocryphal, A-L, as an adjective to describe these meaningful yet spurious stories. I say meaningful because they do provide insight into history that we don't have much knowledge about. When we come to the New Testament, we do not have We don't have a published body of works that we call the New Testament Apocryphal, but there's a set of books that are called Apocryphal. It can be described as the New Testament Apocryphal. These are a hodgepodge of forged letters, uh, stories about the acts of saintly people, and they are sometimes and we call them alternative Gospels. So you the Gospel of Thomas, for instance. Um, they lend nothing to the message of the New Testament. They create confusion. As a child, I remember stories about uh, the child Jesus walking along the road and where his footsteps were, flowers bloomed, and all that sort of thing. That comes from this body of literature. Summary of this would be that apocryphal writings cannot be described as divinely inspired. Hence, they are not included in the canon of scripture, either old or new. I think they would best be described as Gnostic, sort of material to separate from the spiritual, and in Christian uh, theoretical systems, that means that what you do in the body doesn't matter because you're going to be saved anyway. So we have an excuse for a license from sin if we allow for uh, those kinds of provisions. We have to have an integrated view of ourselves. We are one entity, body, soul, and spirit. A trinity of ideas. And it's interesting that, that trilogies and the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit somehow written things in our minds. <laughs> Uh, archetypal structure that's significant. Some other considerations as we think about truth or support materials from the text that we accept as pure, complete. I think what impacts what we accept. Two of these are two books by Josephus, who lived 37 to 95 AD. He was a Jewish priest in Jerusalem. He wrote the history of the Jews, I put it in English, the antiquities of the Jews, and they are helpful in providing historical information about what took place. He defected to the, uh, to Rome about, uh, 67 AD, three years before the fall of Jerusalem, and gave up his, I won't say he gave up his Hebrew faith, but he was especially biased against Christianity. Another writer is Eusebius, who wrote an ecclesiastical history, church history. He lived 
of the problems we have is no no autographs exist because paper deteriorates. They didn't even use paper, they used papyrus, which is a heavy paper sort. And uh, especially prepared leather hides to write on, it's very expensive. But they did it so the Dead Sea Scrolls and they were discovered and as Christian critics and Hebrew critics compare what we have today with those texts, there's very, very little variation, which means that we can be assured that the work has come down to us without being tainted. Having said that, we have a better text, and that's what I call the internal consistency of the scripture. It hangs together. And if you were not of our persuasion, maybe a stranger did, and you say, huh, of course, you brought up that way. I don't apologize for that. Join us, learn, and you can see how it hangs together too. And hopefully, if the New Testament in us is as it should be, there will be little or no deviation from the living word. Because we are part of it. Little incarnate Christ, if you will accept that from me. The prophets are oracles of God. Prophetic oracles are those people who speak and reveal God's will. And that is done for the present and for the future. A reference would be 1 Peter 4, 11. Oracles also describe the things spoken as described by Paul who valued his Jewish heritage. I'll give you a reference, Romans 32, for that. Paul never, however, put anything ahead of his appreciation and his reverence for the cross of Christ. I glory in the cross of Christ, nothing else. That's the his testimony at the end of the book of Galatians, powerful testimony. He had many things he could brag about as a Hebrew person, as a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, and we know that the best that he makes in such Christians, but his glory is in the cross of Christ. <coughs> the prophetic oracles of the Old Testament go far beyond eschatology, uh, uh, future revelation concerning what happens in, after the captivity, what happens in the time of Christ, and what happens beyond us. The prophetic oracles include the law, the history, the poetry, the proverbs, the prayers, and the psalms. We have on them in the devotional this morning. I want to say here that history, of course, is evidence of God's faithfulness in His promise from the beginning of time, and it means me that in the second grouping of the Hebrew Bible, history is included with prophecy. That is a wonderful idea, a very significant idea. History is not this story that comes to us. The interpretation of history is prophetic, and showing us God's activity in the affairs of men. <coughs> now, a revisionist, a secular revisionist, would destroy this continuity because he would deny God by not retaining him in his knowledge. And we have that Bible text. People are not retaining God in their knowledge. They don't want to because if you accept what God says about creation and what he says about you know, anything other than morality, then you will have to accept what he says about morality. Then you will have to accept that you're a sinner. And so therefore, uh, just deny everything 
and then you're a free agent, except people are not free when they deny God. They're in a peculiar and dangerous kind of bondage. One of the works of the scribes down the years was to reconcile the newly copied text with the old one. It appears a very important part of the formation and transmission of the scripture. There were scribes, I won't attempt to give you the name, I didn't even put it in my notes, who reconciled letter by letter what was done line by line by counting the letters. If the count was off, it was redone. If three mistakes were made per page, it was thrown away. It was done over. It was going to be pretty good with that because I don't think they went to Walmart and bought 500 sheets of paper for $3.79. These were gifted people. Scribes were also expected to visually copy by looking at the original with the copy they have in hand and doing it here. They were not supposed to go by memory because memory can become distorted. Memory lapses. I have more than I think I'm having one right now. <laughs> With the best of intentions, scribes did make mistakes. And these mistakes are discernible by what we call textual critics. Somebody that looks at the text, like a high school English teacher, and he looks to see whether the commas are right, whether the verb tenses are right, and that sort of thing. But especially commas and periods and whatever. By the way, that wasn't in the original Hebrew and Greek at all. That's a more modern uh, idea. Critic, as I use it here, is a person who does not look at something to find fault. He looks at it to ascertain truth or to come to an understanding. You want to be careful that criticism as a technical science in translation or even in study of modern literature is not finding fault with it. It's, it's to enhance it to understand. Here are the kinds of mistakes that become evident as we look at, I say we, as these people concerned with uh, <coughs> the uh, copies in the background. You look at a thousand of them and you see a certain kind of mistake only showing up for well, two or three pages. You go with the majority text and say that somebody, somebody made a mistake. Here's the kind of mistake that would be made. There is the possibility of confusing letters that are quite similar. So, um, you wouldn't want a dyslexic doing this kind of copy where you not minding your P's and Q's, where the P's get confused with Q's. That wouldn't work too well. Then there's another kind of substitution where similar sounds are written differently. We have homonyms in English like here and here, H-E-R-E and H-E-A-R. And I find myself when I'm typing, just automatically typing the wrong word once in a while. Uh, and I, I know better. I probably don't do that as much with when I'm handwriting, but uh, anyway. There's another kind of mistake where 
a letter of very word to be omitted. If you listen to a English uh, speaker, a Chinese person speaking English, you will understand that person and you will automatically glance over the skipped articles, for instance. And, uh, it's quaint and we kind of enjoy listening to it. It's not to with the communication of ideas necessarily. It's another kind of mistake where letters are doubled. There is another kind of mistake where words are put together. We call that fusion. There's a difference between white space house and white house. Another mistake is when two words, when a word is separated into two parts, called fusion. Correcting such errors is a kind of revision known as recension, R-E-C-E-N-S-I-O-N. This is different from just revising something where you might be changing it to suit maybe an outlook that you aren't even aware you have. This comes into play when we traditional people are looking rather askance at a new translation, we say, is that a translation or is that a revision? There's a difference. Recension, looking after these small mistakes, requires detailed and unbiased comparisons made to the oldest language texts that are available. Betsy Scrolls, this one. One that's recently been in the news is this rolled scroll that deteriorated and together as play discovered about three or four years ago just recently analyzed without taking it apart with MRI electronic imagery layer by layer read around that scroll lay down on the page and see the text and they see very little change from the text that we have in hand. Do we need that to have faith in what we have? We don't. Let's thank God that he blesses people in our time with that information for people that are coming to faith and may need to know. Um, it's, it's amazing to me that that can even be done. Correcting errors in the text, I'm talking about scribal errors, comes by comparing hundreds and thousands of existing texts. And we are blessed with the Bible to have those copies. There are over 5,700 New Testament texts which exist since 150 A.D. alone. And when you go back of that, you don't have complete texts, particularly because the canon is not even set until around until the end of the 300s. There's over a million quotations from the New Testament which show up in the writings of the early church fathers. How do I make this point? I'm clear to you. I suppose it is clear. I'm sorry. <laughs> How many of your homes have a martyr's mirror? How many of you read it? suppose by chance that suddenly we would have no available Bible in our hands and we set out to reconstruct <laughs> the belief system we have. Uh, you'd want to go to the martyr's mirror early on and you could sort through those texts and start to compile them and start to reconstruct that 
you wouldn't get a complete Bible, but you get the essence of what we believe. That's what I'm talking about here with these thousands upon thousands of patients from writers in the post-Christian era. I mean, post-Christian in the after the apostles, post-apostolic Europe, I should say. In comparison, none of the classics, the, uh, well, Aristotle, for instance, there's nothing exists in his, in his handwriting, you even copy from his work, Plato, I think, is, am I right on this? Why am I in trouble here? Uh, some of these old texts only have two or three copies. And the secular world doesn't question the authenticity of those. Why should they? Does it really matter? Not really. And yet, in a sense, let's play fair with it. And yet, why waste our time arguing about whether secular texts are authentic when we have more important things to do? But one takeaway here this morning as I uh, keep going is that. Uh, Translation and revision are not skills to be used to interpret a text. That's the responsibility of ministers and teachers. Interpretation is the work of ministry. Translation and revision are skills to accurately communicate an unchanging message and I would say it's got to be word for word, except it's impossible to translate word, word by word, because sometimes it takes a phrase to explain a word. So I'm going to use a different term. I'm going to say that translation is semantic block by semantic block. Units of meaning are, must be translated as close to this unit of meaning from the parent language to the new one. Modifying a text changes its meaning and is quite damaging compared to correcting a text of various errors to describe the mistakes that I mentioned above. Words can be translated. Words, semantic views may be translated. Ideas may not be translated. No longer the same idea changes. A word about textual critics, textual criticism. Textual criticism in its purity attempts to find and keep the source text pure and unadulterated, especially as a, uh, they have a working copy to make a new translation, say, into a new tribal language, even in our time. We have translators doing that, working on new translations all the time. Textual criticism, however, Involves <coughs> empirical skills, scientific skills. I mentioned the MRI, is that the word for Anyway, electronic, the electronic ability to look inside the play, scroll, and read it. Traditional people of the King James only variety and some of our very conservative friends in our own church circles get all worked up about the dangers of textual criticism, and that is a worthy thing to be concerned about, because if the textual critic steps aside from just finding the mistakes that are accidental with the idea of changing the text, then he's not playing fair with us. So I'm going to leave you to determine what 
is useful as you look at the work of textual critics and whatever you're reading to prepare sermons and so on. Good textual critics with the use of scientific tools collaborate to expose counterfeit documents, for instance. And so, uh, riddle that shows up in uh, high school, maybe in grade school students, find this document that has uh, a signature on it that's signed by, uh, I should have an example to work out better, by whoever, and stated, can be seen. How do you know that that's fake? You don't date anything BC until after Christ. That's too simple, perhaps. Scientific tools would be useful to tell the age of the ink that's used on a paper, or the age of the materials that the uh, ink is written upon. A signed autograph from the Biblical text would be considered fake. We don't even know that when he falls in, he goes by his own hand and strikes signed for him. That part would be true. Nothing like that has been found. Another thing that happens with with, uh, textual criticism is that fine attention is given to the science of linguistics, which is the study of language. Back to something fundamental again. Internal consistency across the board with the canon of scripture is very, very important to us. There are some Bibles that are not accurate. The most famous one is known as the Adulterer's Bible. You know what the Adulterer's Bible? Typesetter accidentally left the word not out of the seventh commandment so that it read, Thou shalt commit adultery. Now, anybody that's well-versed in scriptural text knows that something is wrong with the time. Well, the uh, King of England's printing office knew that too. The, let's say this again, the British government, the English government, held the rights to the printing of Bibles. And so the printer was like 10,000 pounds. be more accurate. There's one called the Murderer's Bible also which murmurer had translated or printed murderer. Scribal exactitude is mirrored in Christ's words till heaven and earth pass away. One job or tittle shall no wise pass away from the law to all people fulfill. So the I's needed to be dotted, the T's need to be crossed. I owe them I mentioned the pieces. The translation of scripture takes into account that the manuscript copies are not printed copies, they are handwritten. Now, the blessing in this is that one mistake isn't repeated 10,000 times before they, somebody catches it on the run. But then you have many, many sources to look at. You get a variation in mistakes. Study of transmission of scripture takes into account the change in Hebrew form from using the ancient Hebrew text to the modern Assyrian text. 
Now, during the diaspora, spreading of the Jews throughout the world after the captivity of into Babylon, Hebrew is gradually lost among the next generation of Jews coming on. Think how the German language was given up in North America in German-speaking Anabaptist communities with that kind of problem. Alexander the Great, between the Testaments, established Greek as the lingua franca the Mediterranean region. Lingua Franca is a trade language that everyone learns to sell wheat, say, from Rome to Egypt and back up and down that way. So what happens is in the Hebrew community there is this movement by far-sighted people to produce biblical Old Testament text that next generation will understand and use and enjoy, and that is called the Septuagint. The Septuagint has undergone various dissensions and improvements, so much so that it became a useful and powerful apologetic for Christianity and Jews backed away from it. Here's an example of this in the in the Greek, we have the word logos, or word, as in John 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. The word logos is the Greek word for word. Then. So much so that the word logos is pretty much commonplace among many people to speak about the word in our time. A weaker word for an ordinary word is lexic, L-E-X-I, from which we built the word lexicon, a book of words, a dictionary. And we get to the Latin translation, and the text would read, in the beginning was verbum, verbum, B-E-I-B-U-M, and it has a similar effect of talking about ordinary words. Years ago, I attempted to learn some Latin. It didn't go too well because I couldn't memorize words well on the smoking towels. But I carried these flashcards and I was some really enthused about for a bit. And I asked for a copy of the New Testament and a friend of mine got me a copy and I read it. This isn't bulky because it said, in the beginning was sermo, S-E-R-M-O, from which we get the English word sermon. And that carries heavier wallop than this word as an ordinary word. It has a foreign power with it. On down the page in, first, in John chapter 1 we have the expression to who gave he power to become sons of God. And what you have in the inter center column reference in the KJV if you go back to what the translators put in, you have the word authority italicized as an equivalent for power. That's good. When a translator is on the fence, he gives you the alternative and you get to decide. He has not modified the text by holding off this. You can't get back to it without having credentials that he has to take it away. Very interesting. In the Spanish, we have a similar thing. Spanish is a Latin-derived language. We have, in the beginning, was servo, C-R-B-O from which we get the English word earth from the Latin. But the Spanish copies that I was read from 
described in the beginning was Palabra. Palabra, not Joseph in Tagalog. Just this language there. Palabra. Palabra. You Spanish people know the word palabra. Yeah, it carries, it's a word that describes word with more power and authority than just words, which has in the dictionary or as you're doing word games. In English, we use the word in a sort of a nuanced sense where we just understand. In fact, when we use the word word to mean Christ, we capitalize it, right? That's right. I haven't talked much about archaeology. I'm going to keep moving for a few minutes yet. One of the more important things in archaeology, just in passing, is the discovery of the Bazette stone by Napoleon's soldiers in Egypt, which was written in three languages Egyptian hieroglyphics on one parallel column and Greek on the other, and something else on the other. And that became the key for reading. Egyptian hieroglyphics was the point. Well, Hebrew history crosses over. Uh, <coughs> history of the Hebrews as in the story of the Exodus. We go to the study of language just quickly. The early language of man from creation was not known. There's some people think God probably spoke German, there are other people think he spoke. Maybe English, but nobody knows what people spoke in those years. We have a whole body of language called Semitic languages, which are related. Uh, you have a variation of it in Mesopotamia, the land between the rivers. You have a variation of it in Palestine, a variation of it in Egypt. Probably made it easy for Joseph to understand Egyptian. I don't know, I'm joking there. Somehow, there's communication, right? The beautiful thing about Greek is that it was the universal language of the world at the time the Septuagint was written, and it is a very, very important language in the study of translation of the biblical text. Classical Greek is the language known in the Golden Age of Greek before Rome. There was a simple five kinds of Greek known as Koine, K-O-I-N-E, but people were studying that for the first time. It's strange it didn't match up to anything classical, and it was the Holy Ghost language. People became aware that it was a dialect used in Palestine for doing wills and deeds and land documents and that sort of thing. I want to read a verse, 2 Corinthians 3 2 and 3. I'll leave. But I don't keep that to my brother back there. And I take up this business translation later on. Later on. Ye are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read of all men. For as much as he manifestly declares to be the epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with the, <coughs> the spirit of the living God, not the tables of stone, but the fleshly tables of the heart. We have jumped there to that verse. I was thinking about the uh, shyness of God in avoiding writing things. Uh, you know, but let's say last night he wrote on the tables of stone and they got broken and Christ wrote in the dust and it got wiped out with the first breeze and footprints that crossed it, I suppose. So, we have this interesting paradox that 
what God spoke doesn't get into written form except through the instrumentality of people. Then it has a form. But it's not written on stony hearts, it's written on living hearts. And so it comes full circle. What's spoken takes physical form and then it's free again. I hope that our Christian testimony has the freedom of the Spirit in good sense as it came to us through the people of many generations. One of the paradoxes when we look at uh, translations is that when the Hebrew people switched to the use of the Septuagint, uh, Hebrew was lost, and we have Christian translations coming along. We have the Latin translation done, I say Christian, we have the Latin being done in the fourth uh, century, fifth century, maybe Jerome did that one. And we actually have the Old Testament canon established for the Hebrew people coming at the same time as the whole thing is established for the Christian community. Source text for Hebrew translations today is more recent than the Greek ones that the Christian community uses. And in the synagogues and Jewish worship spots across the world, one of the high points of their church or synagogue in the building is a box where the scrolls are kept. And the greatest defacement and dignity that you can put upon the Jewish communities to destroy those scrolls because they see them as holy. So recently a synagogue that was burned here or destroyed in Minnesota, it happens in our country from time to time. The Old Testament, by way of review, is a rich resource to constantly produce and review insight into how we interpret the New Testament, which brings together a composite witness to reconcile man to God as we put our faith in Christ. Scripture takes on deeper meaning through meditation and preaching. Such insight, Latin terms, Sins In a <coughs> is the work of the Holy Spirit. Unlike the divine formation inspiration of the original text, but not contradicting, adding to or obscuring the original text in any way. I have closed with First Peter four eleven. If any man speak, let him speak as the origins of God. If any man minister then do it as of the building which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. 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 Thank you.